This is Wrestling Nostalgia with Dave Dynasty. Greetings wrestling fans and welcome to Wrestling Nostalgia. I am your host Dave Dynasty. This is the podcast where we talk, well, about wrestling nostalgia. All of our wonderful memories of of the past and, uh, you know, the few things here in the present that help to uh, trigger those memories as well. Uh, Once again, I am Dave Dynasty. We got a great episode for you again today. Uh, We're being joined again by author and historian Richard Vicek uh, for part three of our discussion of the WWA, this time 1974 to 1985. This pretty much wraps up the run uh, of the WWA in Indianapolis. So uh, lots to talk about today, lots of people to talk about, some great discussion. Always appreciate Richard coming on and talking with me. Always a great time. Uh, before we get there, whatever podcast platform you're listening to, please make sure you subscribe to the show. Uh, give us a rating and review if possible. Share the episodes. Do all those things. Uh, while you're out there supporting the show, make sure you follow us on social media. Uh, the show is on X, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, just like a Brassel Nostalgia, R-A-S-S-L-E Nostalgia, all one word. And then you can find me personally on X at The Dave Dynasty. Of course, the best way that you can support the show is to go buy a shirt. Go to ProWrestlingTees.com slash The Dave Dynasty. We have lots of designs there. Uh, Go get yourself one today. Uh, It is greatly, greatly appreciated. Uh, Not much to talk about to open the show. I'm just excited to get into this conversation about the WWE. You all know it's my favorite topic to discuss. uh, And uh, always a blast. And you guys always love hearing about it. Uh, So what do you say we just get right to it, right? Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'll be joined by Richard Vicek. And we'll start talking WWE. If you like horror movies, be sure to check out Dave Dynasty and Ike Isaacs on the Listen to Their Screams Horror Podcast. It is available on all podcast platforms and on social media at Listen to Screams. That is Listen, the number two in Screams. All right, and welcome back to Wrestling Nostalgia. I'm joined once again by Richard Vicek, and we're going to discuss the history of the WWA, and this time we're discussing 1974 to 1985 uh richard welcome back to the show hey great to have great to be back and talk about the promotion i grew up with a lot much of the time yeah yeah that's what we're here for this is a a kind of kind of the conclusion of this trilogy of uh there's going to be another part with discussing bruiser bedlam a little bit with dr jerry graham jr but this is a this is kind of the end of the wwa in Indianapolis before they moved to Toledo, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we're going to talk about that. And uh, Richard, I'm going to let you kind of take it away and then I'll chime in here and there. But uh, won't you take it away and then let's roll. OK, so we are now in 1974. This is a few years after the peak, the big and best years of the WWA, which was 1972. And with so many wrestling companies, the promoters slash owners have to bring in new talent uh, to start new competition, new feuds, new storylines. And in 1964, in 1974, Ox Baker arrived in the WWA. And he immediately won the WWA heavyweight title from Cowboy Bob Ellis. 
Previously, in other territories, two of Axe's opponents died after their bouts. This was Raymond, Raymond Torres in 1971 and Ray Gunkel in 1972. Those promoters exploit, exploited these tragic events to imply that Axe was responsible for these deaths. And Axe also did that, too, in his interviews. <clears throat> and then the next big event, just before his arrival, took place at the Cleveland Arena on Euclid Avenue in January 1974, where Axe was partially responsible for a full-scale riot it ensued in the arena involving Johnny Powers and Ernie Ladd, uh, Bulldog Brower. Anyway, and that film footage was shown all the time on Bob Luce's TV show in Chicago. Ox was brought in as a perfect brawler opponent for Dick the Bruiser, and they battled dozens of times. Dozens of times over those three years. Uh, and then what also helped Axe's impact was he was on Bob Luce's television program in Chicago almost every week during those years. You know, Bob Luce had a studio set up, looked like a talk show, and you could count on... Uh, Axe Baker to uh, get the fans all riled up. And uh, so so that was, Axe was always into mischief on Chicago. Yeah. For instance, <laughs> when Pepper Gomez wanted to prove his cast iron stomach, they rolled a Volkswagen onto his stomach. Well, Axe, after he does that, Axe barges into the scene and attacks one of the one of the wrestlers that helped with the stunt with the Volkswagen. He also did a heart punch number on Debbie on Chicago Wrestling Associate Johnny Case. <clears throat> hey, he was a big impact during those years. Yeah, Ox was always one of those guys wherever he went. Uh, and, and like we're talking here in the WWE, uh, wasn't the greatest worker in the world, but was good at what he did and yes. had that gr had that great look, was a brawler. And mm -hmm. uh, and often, you know, like you said, with the, the events, you know, sold the heart punch, right, as being yes. dangerous and, and being a, a, you know, a, a, you know, whatever, a, a match mm -hmm. ender. Uh, and yeah, him and I mean, him and Bruiser had some brawls uh, and were great. And, uh, you know, Ox, you can say what you want about Ox, you know, right? The knees went out later and whatever else. But uh he was he was a great brawler, and uh, you hear all kinds of people that say, you know, Ox was scary. Ox scared him when they watched TV. They still <laughs> and, remember uh, him. Yeah, and I'll be appeared in several TV shows, movies, whatever else, because he had that that mm -hmm. super unique look. Oh yeah, such as the 1981 movie Escape from New York. Yeah, yeah. And he was a contestant on The Price Is Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Show. Yeah, that's and right. He managed to get a. You know, he managed to get around and get exposure. Yeah, yeah. And again, a perfect perfect foil for Bruiser in Indianapolis mm -hmm. in Chicago. The next big addition to the roster in 1974 
was a tag team as Bruiser paired veterans Rene Goulet and Don Fargo as the Legionnaires. They became known respectively, respectively as Sergeant Jacques Goulet and Private Don Fargo. The Legionnaires dressed their parts with bloom pants, riding crops, visor caps, and French flag trunks. Sergeant Jacques Goulet was the sadistic unit commander, while Fargo was the blindly obedient subordinate. Now, us fans in the in WWA got a little chuckle out of this because we remember five years earlier when Don Fargo portrayed the role of Jack Dillinger mm -hmm. in the chain game. <clears throat> so, you know, that's okay. That's okay. We we figured we knew that immediately, but <clears throat> you can't ignore the contributions of the Legionnaires during those years. They held they held at some point WWA tag team champions. They even got some exposure in Chicago in main events at the amphitheater. After <clears throat> after the most of the first year, <clears throat> uh, Fargo left the left the Legionnaires and and veteran Quebec wrestler Pierre Lefleur was brought in as Soldier LeBeouf. In fact, you may people may remember Lefleur later as a lumberjack in the WWF. So while the Legionnaires were never a substitute for the Blackjacks, they certainly were formidable opponents, and it was a pretty re uh, reliable and unique gimmick for the time. Yeah, well, a lot of times, uh, most people, when they think of the mid to late uh, 70s you know, WWE, the Legionnaires popped to mind, right? They were... Always featured well. Always had you had that unique gimmick, that great look, did some some great promos in the roles, and um, like you said, were successful as a tag team. Had you know the runs as champs. Um, I, I think when I think back to uh, the '70s WWE, the Legionnaires always popped to mind as one of the mm -hmm. the highlights and the, the prominent features, and uh, and you know had some had some great matches there, uh, <coughs> wrestling, you know Bruiser and, and, and different cohorts uh, in tag team matches. For sure. The, one of the biggest news developments in the WWA during 1974 was the departure of pretty boy Bobby Heenan. Since 1965, for the most part, he was the number one nemesis for Dick the Bruiser. And Heenan managed a never-ending stable of heels. A lot of those we've we've discussed in the first and second episodes. Nobody bled more in the WWA during that time, and uh, that that type of impact uh, ne was never achieved once he left for the AWA. In fact, the event that caused this departure was in September 1974, 
where Wilbur and Dick staged their first show at the new, newly constructed Market Square Arena, which uh, <clears throat> reports are that building held close to 15 to 16,000, which would have made it the largest selling show in the history of that promotion since they started promotion in 1964. And uh, Heenan was Dick the Bruiser's tag partner, believe it or not, in a main event versus the Sheik and the Sheik's manager, Eddie Creechman. Well, as some people might project, Heenan turned on Dick the Bruiser, and it was uh, some of the biggest heat ever generated uh, during the during that series. <clears throat> After the bout, Heenan got a paltry six hundred dollar payout, being in the main event on a card that easily could have grossed ninety to a hundred thousand dollars. So, and that was the end with Heenan, as he told Bruiser, that's it. And reportedly, Bruiser told him, well, if you think you'd do better somewhere else, go ahead. <laughs> and this was a big loss for the WWA. And the WWA never recovered for this and never achieved their earlier success. So, yeah, that's I mean, sometimes, I, go ahead. No, I mean, obviously, if you lose Bobby Heenan, I mean, that's a that's an impact, right? That was the the top adversary for Bruiser for so long. Uh, and the bump machine, the bleeder, the, the, he was something else. Uh, you know, he called Bruiser's bluff and went on, obviously, to great success. And, uh, you know, I, I from what I've heard, you know, I think Heenan held a grudge against Bruiser from there on out. Yeah. And um, never, never really forgave or forgot that that whole incident. And. Uh, and maybe rightfully so, right? I mean, he was mm -hmm. helping to draw, and uh, maybe you know he deserved a little, little better payout. I would suspect, yeah. but uh, you know, and and we're getting ready to talk about you know handsome Johnny Starr. And no disrespect to Johnny, I love John, uh, and everything else. So you know, but it's it's not Bobby Heenan. Anybody that come right. after is going to be compared, and it's not Bobby Heenan. Mm -hmm. So um, that you know, that's to me, I, I think as you look at the WWA, that's probably. That's the first nail, big nail in the coffin, you know, yes. or, or or one of the biggest nails in the coffin. When Bobby Heenan leaves, that's that's an impact you just, I mean, you can't recover from. Yes, and you know, I always this is just meant as a rhetorical question. In 1987, at the WWF's WrestleMania three, Heenan was in the main event, seconding Andre the Giant against. Hulk Hogan in the biggest live wrestling event up till that time. And Heenan got paid a hundred thousand dollars for his for his duties that day at WrestleMania three in Pontiac, Michigan. Bruiser was alive again. And I couldn't help but wonder, <clears throat> gee Bruiser, what do you think now? <laughs> Yeah, really. You know, I, I mean, mean, there's no way you know, and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, Heenan was going to leave at some point. Yeah, there was just it was going to happen. Uh, you know, no offense to Bruiser, the 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 trajectory of Bruiser and the WWA didn't match the trajectory of the rest of the country. It, 
Hayden was going to be a target of Vince McMahon no matter what. Mm-hmm. At some point, no matter where he was, he was going to get poached by Vince McMahon. He was just too mm-hmm. talented. Yeah. And uh, but, you know, if he hadn't have left, you know, he didn't have some really good years in the AWA with Nick Bockwinkle. Oh, and everything yeah, else. Sure. So it's a uh, it's interesting to think what if if Bobby or if a bruiser had just paid Bobby, you know, what what would the WWE have been like for a few more years there? Mm-hmm. And it's and again, no disrespect to you know, Johnny Starr, Saul Creechman, the different managers that came after to try to fill that top manager heel role. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not Bobby Heenan. And if for yes. a few more years, if you put Bobby Heenan in there, uh, you know, it's going to be it's going to make an impact. There's just no way about it. Yeah. And Heenan is universally recognized as the greatest wrestling manager of all time. Yep. I've never heard anyone say list another wrestler above Heenan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, even managers put, you know, they're like, ah, it's Bobby Heenan and the rest of us. I mean, it's, there's just no comparison. The guy had, he was, he had it all right. I mean, and not only was he a great manager, talker, whatever else, he was a great worker in the ring. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he could take bumps. He could bleed. He was, uh, you know, people don't think of that part of it. They don't notice that part of it because of the interview sometimes. But, uh, you know, without Bobby Heenan taking those bumps and bleeding for Dick the Bruiser, I mean, you know, things change. It's different. Yeah. So it would have been interesting to see if they got a few more years out of yeah. Bobby Heenan in the WWA. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, in, in order to replace Bobby Heenan, the, uh, the new character was developed, Handsome Johnny Starr. Starr was John, real name was John B. Davis, a scholar athlete from Greenfield, Indiana, who used to watch WWA TV as a kid. In 1972, Davis promoted a high school WWA spot show in his hometown. And he did this to get exposed to the wrestling owners. The main event that card was Wilbur against Blackjack Mulligan. After that, Davis wanted to promote opposite the WWA in the state of Indiana, but that's a no-no. You know, you don't mm-hmm. you don't promote opposite an existing promoter. Yeah. And the state athletic commissioner suggested the star that he should try out with the WWA as a talent. His first character was Giacomo, the Italian mobster. But then he, Bruiser made him Handsome Johnny Star. Star managed the big name villains at the time, Ox Baker, the Legionnaires, Chuck the Monster O'Connor. Who was that, Dave? Yeah, that is Big John Studd. Yes, that's very early in his career. This is 10 years before the Andre the Giant feud. Mm-hmm. Big uh, Chuck the Monster O'Connor comes to the WWA. He teams with Ox for, for some time also. And so that would, we still want to recognize handsome Johnny Starr. Yeah. That was the, about the only uh, territory he materially, materially stayed with. You know, he, 
but you know he did a he did a adequate job a very good job and you know he went on to better things to be become a minister in the disciples of christ church yeah i i johnny johnny's a great guy uh he's a friend of the show uh and a talented talented guy um and it's one of those deals where just unfortunately when you're following bobby heenan um no matter how good you are i mean it's you have those comparisons so it's, it's not fair not fair to johnny uh you know to have to do that um because yeah. in his own right uh he was a great guy great you know great talent very talented uh, and and had a great run in the wwa to be proud of uh it shouldn't shouldn't be compared to heenan right because you know, heenan's in a class of his own and uh, we should really just look at, at johnny star for what he did in his own right and and again i love i love johnny he's a great guy yeah uh, you know, such a such a gentleman and uh mm-hmm. great to talk to yes and uh he was he was the first person i ever interviewed for the bruiser book there you go all right that was and that was like you said i i did the interview at one of his churches and so that you know i i always remember johnny for that but anyway in the mid 6 1970s there were other wrestlers that came in and out of the wwa there was luke fez who came in for a run who was 60 years old at the time there was Pepper Gomez. The, there were the Bounty Hunters, managed by Cashback Kent. Three interesting rookies started in the WWA during those years. First, we had Mike Snyder, son of Wilbur. There was Spike Huber, son-in-law of the Bruiser. And Steve Regal, son-in-law of Wilbur. So, you know, there was some young talent that uh, that were brought in that made some good contributions, in my opinion. And, yeah, of course, then and, the Valiant Brothers came back, this time managed by Major Duke George, which I think was a little poke at Captain mm-hmm. Ed George in Detroit, who was the son of the original Sheik. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about the rookies. Yeah, definitely, because, uh, you know, one of the biggest knocks on Bruiser in the WWA is how they aged out, right? You had, and it's, mm-hmm. and there is a lot to that, right? You had Bruiser, who obviously was, you know, got older, and Moose Cholock, Bobo Brazil, and that, that's true. Uh, you know, they were pushed up into the 80s, and, and they were elderly. And don't I'm not I'm not denying that, but uh, Bruiser did give some of the young guys a chance, uh, you know, with you know Mike Snyder, Bruce Huber or Spike Huber, excuse me, uh, Steve Regal uh, later into the 80s, you know, had Stormy Granzig, different guys like that that you know you can you know Jeff Van Camp, uh, all these different guys who uh, different levels of talent but went on to some great great things even after Bruiser, he did have an eye for young talent. Uh, he did give them a chance. I mean, you know, Huber and, and Regal made a great tag team as the Young Lions. Very yes, exciting. And, um, I mean, you know, got over so well that they were used in Memphis there for a while uh, when the <laughs> Bruiser was working. That was one of the things that Jeff Jarrett wanted to use. Uh, so there is a there is a lot to that. Bruiser relied heavily on the older, some of the reliable guys. 
to you know to be fair though those guys still drew right they were still attractions and uh maybe he didn't fully hand the ball off to these young talents but there was still some young talent there that was that was notable mm-hmm. uh, and, and and were very very talented um even to this i mean you know to this day you look you know look back on these guys i mean steve regal went on to some great things after the wwa and spike huber you know was a, was a great talent uh mike snyder was a great talent who i really don't think achieved what he should have achieved uh, in the business i thought he had a lot more talent to go bigger bigger places than what what he did mm-hmm. and uh so you know uh there's a lot of misconceptions about the wwe and what happened to them uh, and we're getting ready to talk about kind of how the decline started happening and sure and 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 i don't know you know i don't know some of that is on bruisers some of it is just a just being a victim of the change of the scenery, the change of the, the wrestling business mm-hmm. that was happening and not, not staying up with that. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm glad that we highlighted some of those young talents because it's often overlooked that, you know, while Bruiser maybe didn't completely rely on these guys, there were some talented young guys in the WWA. Yes. And during the 1976, the 79 period, there are three arrivals, three guys I want to give who I want to give their due credit. Who, uh, although these guys were the main uh, rivals, you know, usually first for Wilbur and then the Bruiser. But the three people in question were the Masked Strangler. He was under the mask, veteran John Steele Hill who previously had experience as assassin number two. This is going back to 1965. Guy Mitchell, Guy Heenan, and the Stomper in Detroit. He was a competent and loyal wrestler to the WWA, whose work should be duly noted. The Strangler held the WWA heavyweight title, defeating Pepper Gomez, but then losing the strap to Dick the Bruiser. So, and we could, maybe you want to add, Dave, John Steele Hill also had another identity a few Mm -hmm. years later in the WWF. Why don't you tell the people about that? that? Well, he was, he was Jerry Valiant. Yes. And um, I mean, you know, he, it's wild to think he had a lot of success as Jerry Valiant, right? In the WWF, mm-hmm. in the WWA, he came back, did a lot of things. And people don't realize how talented and how much success he had even before that. I mean, he was uh, ever-changing, always had a multitude of gimmicks, but just always uh, what, what they call a good hand, right? One of those mm-hmm. guys that was just could go out there and work and have a good match with anybody. Uh, uh, very underappreciated. I mean, he stepped in with the Valiants because Jerry Valiant, whatever, had got sick, had something in the WWF, and uh, and Jerry stepped in and filled in, you know, teaming with Johnny, uh, just fine, and mm-hmm. uh, became that third that third Valiant brother that's often often overlooked. Uh, John Hill is is great. He is to me is just one of the more underappreciated talents ever in wrestling. Yes, and he was so appreciated by Dick and Wilbur that sometimes a spot show would be managed by by John Steele Hill. He'd he'd work the box office with the venue, he'd do the payoffs, 
give the finishes. So how many other people did that? Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, I'm just. Bru- Bruiser wasn't known for, for trusting other people too well. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, then after the Strangler, the big arrival was the Russian bear, Ivan Koloff, who was a former WWF champion defeating Bruno Sammartino in 1971 at Madison Square Garden. And then he ca- and he came to the WWA for countless bout- bouts with Bruiser. And I think there were four consecutive Indianapolis cards with Koloff versus Bruiser in the main event. <clears throat> you know, at, for a few years earlier, Koloff worked for the outlaw Eddie Einhorn IWA group. <clears throat> and a lot of other promoters blackballed Koloff for doing that, which was running opposition to a existing promoter. That didn't phase Bruiser at all. He recognized Koloff's talent and brought him in. And they, I remember, that I think they had a cage match with a climax to the feud was Ivan, Ivan leaping off the top of the cage onto, and Bruiser just rolls away at the last second. Yeah. But that was a big, that was a big feud which stabilized the business in 1977 in Indianapolis. Yeah. I, Ivan Koloff has always been one of my favorite wrestlers. Mm-hmm. I, I loved him in Jim Crockett promotions, uh, you know, and everything, you know, obviously he did before. Again, he's one of those guys that, I mean, he, you know, people talk about it, but I still think he's underappreciated for how great he was. Yes. Um, he, he and, was so talented. Yes. And, you know, I do not think he's in the WWE Hall of Fame. Nope. And I think it is speculated. One of the reasons was he participated in a class action lawsuit against the WWA, which was suing the WWA for, you know, concussion related illnesses and uh, brain injuries, all all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which those yeah. cases were thrown out of court without merit. Yeah. But I, I just that's what is being that's why he is, it is said he is not in the WWE Hall of Fame, but deserves it. Yeah, he does. Unbelievable. That the guy that ended Bruno's first reign is not yeah. in there. And that's just unbelievable. He, he challenged Ganya main evented in AWA. He was part of the the Russian tag team in Crockett promotions mm. in the 80s. Yep. You know, feuding with the Bruce. You know, he just had a amazing career. He did. Yeah, just, uh, you know, Uncle Ivan was one of those guys, no matter where he went, he was consistent, right? He mm-hmm. and you and you just I don't know, you believed him, right? I mean, he's not he's not Russian, right? He's Canadian. Yes. <laughs> but you but you believed in um and he, you know, was just he was so talented in the ring, even when he was was older in Crockett Promotions. He still was great in the ring, knew what to do, knew how to get the crowd reaction. Uh, again, it was one of those guys. Perfect, perfect adversary for adversary for Dick the Bruiser. And, um, you know, you're talking in the 70s and, in the, you know, 
everything else when you know the Cold War and and, and everything with Russia was was so prominent. He was he was just perfect. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 he was the kind of guy that Dick the Bruiser liked to work with. For sure. And they I remember Ivan telling me he was one of the first he was one of the first guys I interviewed after Johnny Starr and he says he would even ride to Chicago up and back with Bruiser. And he says, you know, I uh it was uh he he enjoyed that he was respected so highly by Dick the Bruiser. Yeah. Hey, the next bit in 1979, another big arrival occurred. That was King Kong Brody, who was also known in other territories as Bruiser Brody. And he he feuded with Dick the Bruiser frequently in the WWA. Their in-the-ring conflict included a dressing room brawl in Peoria, Illinois, over payoffs. Which, by the way, Bruiser settled the account the next week when they were both on a card in St. Louis. But I want to say that the WWA never had a stronger dominant, a stronger dominant individual personality as Bruiser's primary opponent all those years. I just thought his impact, and of course he didn't sell as frequently as maybe some other villains. (laughs) There there wasn't a stronger opponent for Bruiser in Indianapolis and Chicago during those years. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was great, right. To, to do the, the feud of the Bruisers, right. And, 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 Mm -hmm. When Brody beat him and, and Dick was on TV or whatever and says that he you know oh, he doesn't deserve to be Dick the Bruiser, right? And he's gonna be, you know, should be referred to as Dick the Loser and this and that and and kind of owning up to that and, and having some battles over the name Bruiser and it just made sense, right? And Bruiser Brody was such that traveling attraction at that time that you know it could go everybody knew who he was from the magazines and everything else. Uh, so he could go into a territory and you know and, and pop attendance and pop a crowd. Mm-hmm. And um and it's yeah, it's interesting to see these two because you know you have Dick the Bruiser and and Bruiser Brody, neither one known for overselling for the other per, <laughs> their opponents. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, it was it was a great rivalry, right? And uh, yeah, you know, you know Brody, like you said, Brody called Bruiser out on the payoffs, and uh, Dick the Bruiser ended up making it right, and and they they did business together. Mm-hmm. Well, now I think we'll once Brody left, <clears throat> I. Uh, let's call it call it the beginning of the end, which was around 1980. You know, here's one thing that I've written about before, and I'm sure most people will, will agree that wrestling is a young man's game. Bruiser and Snyder were big stars in the 1950s, but now it's 25 years later. And in 1980, Bruiser, Snyder, Moose were 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Bobo was 55. You know, in almost any athletic encounter, uh, activity, you cannot beat Father Time. Competitive ice skaters deteriorate. So does so do footballers and basketball, and hockey, 
you know, there's just a few, very few exceptions. And then by the time 1980 moved along, so many of these big name visitors that we discussed in the 1960s and 1960s had moved on. And few young wrestlers in the WA were getting big pushes. Yep. Uh, you know, they the crowd got the crowds got so bad that they stopped using Market Square Arena and went back to the old armory. Because yeah. you, you can't pay high rent on a Market Square Arena and perhaps draw twelve hundred people or less. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And one these of get, things Yeah, it's like Bridger, uh, Bridger didn't know right. There was a there was a place on the card for these guys, right? They yeah. could still be on the card. Uh, they could still be on the show, but they he he didn't like we said earlier, right? There was some great young talent, and he didn't know how to just fully pass it on and, and fully. I don't know what it was. If he didn't trust, if he just thought he was the draw, uh, if it was an ego thing, whatever it may be, uh, he didn't know how to transition, right? Yeah, is there a place for Bobo Brazil on the card? Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Is it main eventing and and beating everybody else? Mm, probably not at this point. No. <laughs> so it's like he didn't know how to transition and and how to grow and how to kind of move with the times yeah uh, like like a lot of other promotions did and some of those talents said he didn't want bruiser did not want to share the spotlight and and people told me bruiser still thought he was 30 years old yeah and that's part of what you know in 1982 he had a working relationship with jerry jarrett in memphis and uh, that's part uh, that's what caused it to fall apart because uh, Jarrett was pushing Kamala and uh, wanted, you know, Kamala to be built as this, you know, unbeatable, this dominating thing. And in a show, I believe it was in Fort Wayne, uh, you know, it was Bruiser versus Kamala and, or whatever. And Bruiser changed the billing, you know, the car, the billing and mm-hmm. went over on Kamala and Jarrett's like, that's enough. I'm not doing this. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Bruiser just couldn't, couldn't he seemingly couldn't step back and it didn't mm-hmm. know how to, to step out of that limelight a little bit and let somebody else shine. Yeah. And of course, during the same time, cable TV competition started heating up yep. with on WORTV, Secaucus, New Jersey, and, which was the WWF and on WTBS TV, Superstation in Atlanta which was Georgia Championship Wrestling. Those promotions now were being viewed in Indianapolis and Chicago and all points in between. And they had young talent, hot feuds, compelling storylines. I mean, during that, those 1971, they start or in Georgia they had the Tommy Wildfire Rich versus Buzz Sawyer feuds mm-hmm. in the early 70s. Excuse me, in the early 80s, they had Magnificent Morocco versus Jimmy Snuka. You know, it was just a man. You know, how can Bru- Bruiser? How can wrestling fans keep interest in WWA? And that was my case. Yeah. I, I had these cable stations at home, 
you know, I ceased watching the, and the, you know, I, in those years, it's when I first had a my own videotape cassette recorder. I didn't think I didn't want to waste the valuable tape on Bruiser's promotion. <laughs> now, I when Bob Luce would show an early '70s amphitheater film, yeah, I'd pull out the VCR, but. <clears throat> You know, I witnessed that that explosion of the WWA in Georgia. Yeah. And, yeah, and again, uh, again, that was that was the biggest death of the territories is, is cable. It uh, would suddenly you have where, where before you were seeing your local product. That's pretty much all you're seeing. So that's the wrestling you, you've known. That's the wrestling you're OK with. And then suddenly when you, you have this cable explosion and you're seeing a different product that that's a little more exciting, a little more uh, whatever you want to say, well, energetic or however you want to put it. Suddenly what you're used to seeing doesn't, doesn't look as good. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what happened. You know, the promotions, you know, the, the promotions that didn't evolve and didn't keep up with that, that the times and the trends that were being set uh, that they just descended, dried up and died out because they, they couldn't compete with, the markets that were on cable and the product they were showing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and that's, you know, and we, you know, we, like I said, we talked about the aging out of, of the bruiser and the WWA and that, that is true, but you know, the biggest nail was probably like everybody else. It was just times were changing. Cable TV yeah. was growing and becoming the norm. Um, I don't, it, it was just an unavoidable, you know, ev- evolution of wrestling that yes. I think it was bound to happen no matter what. And the WWA got into a vicious cycle. They couldn't afford the top name talent anymore. Yep. You know, they started using the same finishes that fans would, some fans would recognize. Fans would lose interest. Attendance fell. Then they could, and then again, they couldn't hire, didn't have the cash flow to hire talent for the next show for the next series of programs. So it was, it was, uh, you know, a downward spiral and they resorted to gimmick and lookalike wrestlers like the world warriors or mm-hmm. Gary Lawler or Abdullah, the insane one. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, you know, that's like Jack Fefter. Jack yeah. Pfeffer practices. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that 20 yeah. years earlier. Yeah. And, and like you uh, said, it's, it is what it is. Bruiser, he booked who he could book uh, yeah. because he, he wasn't, you know, wasn't drawing the, the same, uh, wasn't making the money. So it was, you know, you, you can't, if the money's not there, you can't grow. Hey, uh, some, and, there are spot shows where his calendar shows he was only paid $75. Yep. Yep. You know, and yep. I'm sure. So, and of, yep. what also didn't help the WWA on keeping talent was by 1983, they had lost their paydays and exposure at the International Amphitheater. Vern start, started to take over there. And Wilbur, of course, then Wilbur retired and was bought out by Bruiser. Steve Regal 
Wilbur's son-in-law left the WWA for greener pastures and eventually held, co-held the AWA tag titles. And then in 1984, the sitting WWA champion, Spike Huber, left his wife, Michelle, who was Bruiser's daughter. And that didn't help the situation <laughs> yep. at all. You know, the title was vacated and Spike actually attempted to promote uh, opposite Bruiser in, in small town venues. Yeah, uh yeah, by the by this time it was just it was kind of getting to be a mess. Uh, you know, in '83, like you're talking about with losing Chicago and Vern, but '83 Vern Vern was going the opposite. Vern boomed in '83 because he had Hulk Hogan, and uh, this was right. You know, Hulkamania was being born, and and Vern's was 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 booming at this time. Bruiser was not, so there was they weren't on they weren't on level playing field, right? It was different, and then you know. You know, Bruiser, you know, he puts the belt on Spike Huber and this and that, thinking, hey, it's it's safe. This is my son-in-law. This is, you know, a guy I can rely on to be here. And then he couldn't. And, uh, you know, he just then around that time is when he just puts the belt on Stormy Granzik with the Phantom title change and and this and that. And it's it was just, you know, kind of kind of a mess. Uh, lots of things happening. Uh, Bruiser not, you know, trying to hold on, not not being willing to just accept that. Hey, this is this is it. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. it's passed me by. And uh, and I was told by Dick the Bruiser Jr. that Dick the Bruiser Sr. he had to go into his own pocket sometime to subsidize the operations of the WWA, especially yeah. for uh, TV, which by then was only in Indianapolis. Yeah. You know, they didn't even have the funds to use, you know, TV slots in Terre Haute, Elkhart, and Fort Wayne. Yeah, and then, I mean, yeah, and then, you know, again, in 85-ish, you know, we get, you know, Bruiser kind of being approached by Dr. Jerry Graham Jr., uh, who had, you know, had lots of connections in Toledo, Ohio, and and had some backers uh, with some breweries and Sam Botek and different things there. Um, and you know, so, you know, Graham Jr. kind of bought into the WWA. They moved its base of operation. Well, first, I believe first it moved to Detroit, did some tapings in Detroit, but later wound up in, in Toledo, Ohio, uh, kind of evolving into WWA Bruiser Bedlam. Um, and you know, it didn't do bad because I think Dr. Jerry Graham Jr. had more of a sense of what they were, that they were more of a, just a small regional, not competing, you know, not, not. They're not going to compete with Vince, and just I think he was a little more settled into his pocket of what he was doing, and uh, you know they they hang you know hung on till '89. Uh, Bruiser I know died a couple years later, held on, promoted some spot shows, all the way up to his, almost his death. Um, but uh, you know I mean, and, and the good thing I think kind of about the move to Toledo and the Bruiser Bedlam, um, you know. Moose Cholock, Bobo Brazil, those guys were there, but they weren't featured quite as prominently. Bruiser, Bruiser did comment, you know, color commentary mostly with Terry Sullivan, and uh, it wasn't, you know, there was there was some great, you know, some really good talent I think in Bruiser Bedlam, and, but again I think they knew they were kind of just a uh, kind of a little regional promotion in Ohio and didn't try to overstep and exceed exceed their means 
like like maybe Bruiser did. Uh, but but by '85, when it, you know that happening, the the WWA that we all knew uh, had pretty much ended. I mean, you know, Bedlam was almost like a different promotion. Uh, the lineage might be there, but uh, but it's but it's different, right? It moved from Indianapolis, and and the the era of the WWA powerhouse in Indianapolis was 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 dead and gone. Yeah, but you know, when you look back, there are a lot of positive things. When you, if you want to write an epilogue on the WWA, you know, mainly that they were a solid and highly respected independent promotion during the territory era. And they prospered for years and years, you know, and both Bruiser and Snyder were inducted into Bob Luce's Wrestling Hall of Fame at the amphitheater in 1971. And the WWA was a vital partner with Vern Gagne's AWA in the Chicago Wrestling Club from 1966 to 1983. Those guys, Bruiser and Snyder, hired and nurtured not only Bobby Heenan in 1965, but David McLean in 1982. And both of their careers took off afterwards. You know, Dave, you have to remember that a lot of people had their early exposure and experience in the WWA. There was Rip Rogers, mm-hmm. Scott Steiner, Dr. Jerry Graham Jr., the great Woju. Wojo, Scott Romer, Sam DeCero, who was one of the world warriors and eventually founded Windy City Wrestling. Mm-hmm. And it should always be remembered that Bruiser and Snyder are the ones that created the Blackjack and the Valiant Brother tag teams who went on to bigger and better things. Yep. In the state of Illinois, Indiana, Bruiser's status and image are legendary, and in the business, he is known as one of the best brawlers and unique characters of all time. And Snyder was an outstanding technician, but maybe, unfortunately, not as appreciated because he was overshadowed by the boisterous Dick the Bruiser. See, by 1985, the WWF ran its first show in Indianapolis, January 19th at Market Square Arena, Hulk versus Paul Orndorff. In fact, it's ironical, WWA veterans Jerry Valiant and Bobby Bold Eagle were on the undercard that night. <laughs> and after Bruiser and Snyder both died in 1991, They each got another Hall of Fame induction. Bruiser with WWE Legends in 2021 and Bruiser in the Fez Fagos Waterloo Hall of Fame. You know, the amateur, because Bruce, because Wilbur was an amateur wrestler at the University of Utah, which was was finally duly recognized. Let's see here. 23 years after Wilbur passed away, but it was recognized, so we salute that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, again, a lot of people look back on WWE and a lot. So many people remember because there's so much tape from the 80s. And, and a lot of people look back at it and think, oh, they had all these old guys. They did this and that. And, and they overlooked the 70s. And they overlooked the contributions. And, and like you said, the Valiants and the Blackjacks and all these things that Bruiser uh, and, and uh, Snyder and the WWE contributed to wrestling. And, uh, you know, once upon a time, they were one of the top three or four promotions in the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a powerhouse. And we're drawing huge crowds. And, uh, you know, it's such a rich history there. Uh, but again, so many people just base the WWA on, on, on the lean years and, and don't look at the, the prime. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's too bad. That's kind of what we're trying to do is, you know, it bring a little recognition and, and a little exposure to, uh, to how important to the business the WWA truly was. Well, they, they certainly made, made, uh, made the mark and uh i appreciate you allowing me in these three episodes to review their solid contribution to the to wrestling history yeah like i said when i you know i want to dive into the history there's there there's few on your level richard because you know you've talked to so many of these guys uh like you mentioned and and i want to plug you you know you've written the the biography on dick the bruiser uh uh, it's called what bruiser the world's most dangerous wrestler Yes. And uh, still available out there, Crowbar Press yes. uh, out there. And I, I highly suggest people uh, go and get that book. It's a, it's a great, great book. If, even if you're not particularly so much a WWA fan, just if you're a fan and wrestler in general, Dick the Bruiser, outside the WWA, one of the most important wrestlers of all time, uh, even despite Indianapolis. I mean, it was a success in St. Louis and, and Detroit and Chicago, uh, everywhere. I mean, the, the man was unreal, especially even before he was promoting, was a, was a huge draw in the 50s. Uh, so uh, so go get Richard's book. I'll put the link in the in the bio so people can go mm-hmm. check it out. Uh, you know, and if, if you're looking for a, a last minute Christmas present to grab up for your wrestling fan on your list, I, I highly suggest you get Richard's book on Dick the Bruiser for them. So yeah. uh, I think Bruiser wrestled in the United States everywhere except Portland territory and Charlotte. Yeah. D- during his entire career. So that's quite, now how many people can say that? Yeah. It is peculiar that he never, never did go to Charlotte really. And mm-hmm. do that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It, it'd be curious to me whether that was by his choice. Cause you would think at some point there would have been, there would have been an offer made to come in and do at least a, some spots here and there or a little run. And, uh, or, I mean, he was always promoting his own. So maybe it just, Timing was never right uh, to do that. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, but yeah, yeah, he was, you know, again, yeah, like you said, appeared everywhere, uh, you know, and uh, always a top, top draw, uh, yeah. you know, and, and so many notable events and, and happenings uh, in his career. Uh, so, yeah, hey, go get that book. He, he made nationally, nationally, uh, national news mm-hmm. <laughs> with the riot. At Madison Square Garden in 19, yep. let's see, 57, and mm-hmm. with the Alex Karras brawl in Detroit in 1963. Yep, absolutely. So that helped yeah. solidify his national reputation. Yeah, and and and, and the brawl in Detroit the, with with Karras, uh, 
everybody thought that was that was legit. That was a shoot. <laughs> and for so long, you know, it was, it was kind of like the Lawler Kaufman thing. Nobody it blurred the line so well. People didn't know what to believe and what to think. And uh, it helped it helped draw a house uh, mm-hmm. when those two met. So uh, it always it always boggles my mind that Alex Karras was the guy that later <laughs> was on Webster. <laughs> and it just <laughs> makes me <laughs> chuckle. But uh, yes. Yeah. So. Uh, so, yeah. Thanks, Richard, for coming on and doing these. We'll have you on again yes. in the future when we talk oh, other good. topics and, and different and happy things. Happy holidays to all the your listeners. And thanks for your attention. Absolutely. Uh, again, go buy Richard's book. I can't suggest it enough. I've, I've read it multiple times. It's a it's a very worn version of my book library. And uh, go get that. And uh, like I said, Richard, we'll have you on again in the future because I'm always I'm always wanting to pick your brain uh, for good. your knowledge and experience. So. Ladies and gentlemen, Wrestling Fans International Association is back. That's right, the premier fan club association of the 1970s and 1980s has been revived and is back in business. Join today. It's free at the WFIA.org. That's T-H-E-W-F-I-A.org. You can also join us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash groups slash WFIA 1969. All right, and welcome back to Wrestling Nostalgia. Once again, I am Dave Dynasty. Uh, thank you again to Richard Vicek for coming on and joining me in that discussion of the WWA from 1974 to 1985. Always good to have Richard on. We'll have him on again in the future uh, for some other topics related to WWA history uh, and so forth. Uh, go buy his book, right? There's a link in the show notes. If you do not have the Bruiser book that Richard wrote, uh, get yourself a copy today. Uh, it is a great read, and it's a must-have in any wrestling fans library uh, like we mentioned earlier make sure you follow us on your favorite podcast platform make sure you follow us on all those social media outlets go buy one of the shirts and support the show uh, we this is the last show before the holidays are upon us so i hope everybody has a great holiday season i uh, hope everybody gets to spend time with their families has some you know some you know relaxing times just to sit back and reflect uh, and, and enjoy the important things in life right it's hey let's get down to it it's not wrestling it's not Anything else, it is It is about you, your health, your mental stability, and uh, your relationships with those that you you love. Uh, so make sure you know, give them an extra hug. Uh, enjoy those important things. And let's gear up for uh, 2024. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks to kick off 2024 with another episode of Wrestling Nostalgia. But until then, wherever you go and whatever you do, be good, be safe. And keep on growing.